Uh, good morning. Uh, my name's Tim. Danny mentioned before, I'm one of the student pastors here. Uh, it's really a joy to be able to open God's Word this morning with you all. Uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through to 18. If you have it there in front of you, it's going to be great for you to look along as we do that. We're in the middle of a series. You can see the title there on the screen, To Live is Christ. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit more today. I'm going to dive straight into reading from verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand what it means to live for Jesus. Not just personally and in our own hearts, but as your church. Please give us uh, instruction. Please be our teacher. And please might your grace uh, be magnified among us, as we think about your son Jesus and how us as a community, we gather around him. And so, Father, we ask for all these things as we open your word now. Amen. I wonder what comes to mind for you uh, when you hear the word obedience. Memories of high school, tuck your shirt in, pull your socks up, stop talking, speak up. Great memories for you all, I'm sure. Uh, chatting with someone this week, they told me that uh, they're on their work site and, uh, and WorkSafe came along and uh, told them that the way that they were doing this particular thing for years had to change completely for some reason that perhaps wasn't so clear to the workers. Um, or perhaps you're a nurse at the moment and maybe the government's making particular decisions that, uh, about budgeting and responsibility and accountability that, that kind of frustrate you a little bit or you just don't understand And so these might be the examples that you think of when you hear the word obedience. Uh, And these types of obedience frustrate us for a few reasons. We don't understand why we have to obey. Why do I have to tuck my shirt in? We don't know if we can trust the person who's in authority. Is safe work just covering their own tails? Or maybe the one in authority doesn't actually really care for us. Maybe they're just concerned about the bottom line or where the money's coming from. And I wonder if it's those things that, that come to mind when you think about your obedience to Jesus. Maybe you think of it in a similar way. Well, let me tell you up front, it's not. And I think we see what God has to say to us today. We're going to see really clearly why that is. Uh, the passage talks about our gospel obedience. And it talks about it in the heart, 
talks about it in the church, and it talks about it in the end. So let's get started. Gospel obedience in the heart. Gospel obedience is clearly in view. It says it there in verse 12. As you have always obeyed. At the very start of the verse, it starts with a therefore. So we have to think back to what it's pointing to and what it's drawing from. Um, And what we know is that the, the verses that come before tell us of the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. That's the foundation of what Paul is going to go on to say next. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, sought out not his own interests, but was determined to live for the glory of his Father and for the interests of others. He poured himself out completely, giving himself over to humiliation. And so, verse 9, God exalted him. He elevated him and promoted him to the highest place to one day be recognized as the ruler of the universe. Every knee, every tongue, every person submitted to him. Therefore, Paul says, given this glorious king and his gospel, Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience, just as you have always obeyed. For 10 years, they have been faithful to Jesus. They have followed him. They have obeyed him. That's when they first received the gospel, and they're still doing it to this day. Which is exactly the fitting response to the exalted Lord of the universe, isn't it? It's to submit to his rule, to live in his way rather than in our own. And it's for this reason that he is the exalted Lord of the universe that obedience is not an optional extra to the Christian life. Being a Christian is to submit to him as your king. And so we read on and we ask the question, what does continued obedience look like for the follower of Jesus? Look there in verse 12, it tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. It's a bit of a funny phrase. What does, it, what does it mean is the question we have to ask. It doesn't mean to work out your salvation like a maths equation, as though it's an intellectual exercise. You're just going to try and understand it and, and work out is meant in that kind of way. No, no, no. It's, um, and nor is it to work for your salvation, as though it could be something that you achieve. Rather, it means taking the, sa- the salvation that you have received from God and outworking it, to live out the implications of the gospel in every part of your life. It's pushing the truth of the gospel into every facet of your life. It's like those people who make ice cream. Um, I'm sure you've seen them before. They take the Oreos and they crush them up, and then they put it on top of the bed of ice cream, and they roll the ice cream around, and they knead it in, and they push it in so that the ice cream becomes totally saturated with the Oreos. That's what outworking looks like. It's taking the gospel and pushing it into your heart, kneading it into your life, so that you become saturated with the gospel. And Paul has in mind here a complete renovation. See there in verse 13, both to will and to work. It's not just the working, but it's also the willing. 
the level of the desires, the emotions, the motives. See, Paul has in mind here not just a minor life modification, but right down to the deepest part of our hearts is a renovation that transforms not just our behaviour, but even the deepest things in our hearts. Because you guys know how easy it is, don't you, to do all the right things, but to be doing it for all the wrong reasons. We act like uh, in ways that are generous, perhaps, but we're doing it so that people might look approving on us. Or we serve in church, but we're really doing it to bolster our own sense of self-righteousness. Or perhaps we move mountains for someone, but really we're doing it to manipulate so that they'll owe us something in return later. See, that's all behaviour that seeks our own interests and not the interests of others. So the question is, what does gospel obedience look like there in our hearts? What does it look like when we press the gospel deep into our hearts? Well, it looks a bit like this. When we press the gospel into our hearts, we realise that our longing for approval is already met in Jesus. Did you know that? He was totally humiliated, died on a cross, murdered by the ones he created for your sake, so that you can have his approval and be loved by him. He took on humiliation, he took on death for me. I've got all the approval I need. I'm completely loved. So now I'm free to act generously without needing anyone's approval. I can do it for the interests of others. Here's another example. The gospel tells me that I've been given a righteousness. So I don't need to serve in church to somehow build up a righteousness of my own. I'm free to serve in church looking out for the interests of others. And we can move mountains for others. We can love people in really significant ways, not needing to manipulate or control people to feel secure because the Lord Jesus is in total control. He's the Lord of the universe. We can rest secure in him. And so now I can love others freely. Can you see what we're doing here? We're working the gospel that we've received from God and we're working it into our hearts. And so from a renovated heart flows renovated living. The gospel transforms our will and so it transforms our work. It transforms our hearts and so it transforms our hands, our desires and so our doing. So we work out our salvation. And did you notice there uh, in verse 12 that we're to do this with fear and trembling? Remember that time in the boat? It was a small boat out at sea when the weather suddenly turns and is now dangerous to the point of tipping the boat over and putting the lives of the fishermen at risk. Then a man asleep in the bottom of the boat woke up. He stood up. And he said to the waves, be quiet. And they obeyed him. Waves the size of mountains, tamed with a whisper. 
Do you remember that? That was in Mark chapter 4. That was Jesus who did that. Do you remember how the disciples responded? Have a look there at John chapter 4, 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling before the exalted Lord of the universe. See, this is not a side project to your life. This is an all-in obedience to Jesus. We do it with fear and trembling before him. This would all be totally impossible if it weren't for what we see in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The God who has exalted the Lord Jesus to the highest place and the name that is going to be glorified at the end of all time is the very same God who tells us right here in the text that he is the one working in us. God is the one working, both the willing and the working. And that radically transforms our obedience to Jesus. Firstly, we can obey with dependence on him. Not with self-reliance, as though it's something that we bolster up in ourselves to do, but it's something we do with dependence on him. And secondly... We can obey with confidence, not feeling defeated, because it's God the one, God's the one who's doing the work. And notice there, he's doing all of this for his good pleasure. See, it delights God to work in you and to make you the best version of yourself. You see, the one that's humble, not selfish, not conceited, but someone who looks to the interests of others. Can you imagine having a friend like that? Can you imagine having a colleague like that? A classmate who's like that? A spouse or a parent who's like that? It would be wonderful. And that's what God wants to make you to be for others. And so we obey, not defeated or self-reliant, but dependent and with confidence. And so we see that obedience is in the heart. Moving on, obedience in the church. Paul now moves on to apply what he's saying in verse 12 and 13 in a very specific way. You might not pick this up if you just read over these verses. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. See, Paul has the Philippian church community as a whole in his sights. Uh, As he says these things, he's speaking to the community as a whole, not just to individuals. You see, the word grumbling is what happens when two people have different competing ideas and are arguing about it. And disputing has the idea of complaining. Complaining either to the person who you're complaining against, or it can also mean complaining to someone behind their back. Uh, The kind of talk that goes under your breath or behind the scenes. 
You see, these are the kinds of, kinds of things that drive wedges between people and splits communities. And Paul is making here a very pointed and confronting application um, of what he's saying to the Philippians. It's very pointed and very confronting, and very confronting because we know that this is a particular area of struggle for the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 27, he calls them to stand firm in one spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he tells them to be like-minded, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. See, he has to tell them, stop being divided, be united. That comes up throughout the book as a theme. Even in chapter 4, verse 2, he calls out two people by name. He says, Iodia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord, reconcile over your conflict. I'm not sure Iodia and Syntyche would enjoy that very much, being called out as this letter is read to the church. But Paul here is calling out their sin. Not just those two, but perhaps the church more broadly. He's calling them out. He's calling it as he sees it. Church, stop with the grumbling and disputing. Be finished with the gossiping and snarky comments. Stop cutting down your leaders behind their backs. Do not let anything disrupt the unity of the gospel community. And of course, you guys will know this, that one true measure of your gospel obedience will be seen in gospel community. Have you ever wondered how godly you are? You want a test to measure how... Uh, how good your righteousness is? Well, here's a test. Commit yourself to gospel community. Not just attend a gospel community, like you're attending a gospel church. And nor am I thinking here just a few weeks or months either. The Philippian church received the gospel 10 years earlier. So let's just pull 10 years out a bit randomly. And just to say, commit yourself to a gospel community for 10 years. Be involved in the lives of those around you. Get to know them. Let them get to know you. Join a growth group. Join a serving team. Commit to gospel community. You see, that's a test of your godliness because it puts you in a pretty vulnerable position. People will probably start to see the gaps in your godliness. Maybe they start to see your anger problem that you have or your workaholism or your passivity or your gossiping, or your prayerlessness. What will you do then? Will you cover up so that no one can see your weaknesses? Or will you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Will you trust the Lord of the universe that there is not one sin that his death on the cross has not covered? And so be joyful, Be confident in him enough. So it doesn't matter if people see that you struggle. It doesn't matter if people see that you fall short. I've trusted in Jesus. I don't need to defend myself. What about when you see the gaps in someone else's godliness? Will you see that as an opportunity to pounce on them, to gossip about them, or even just in your own heart to condemn them? You see, that would be to do exactly what Paul is warning against. He says, don't do the grumbling, 
don't do the disputing? What would working out your salvation look like there? Well, have a think. How did Jesus treat us when he saw the gaps in our godliness? You see, he humbled himself to the point of death to save people who didn't just have gaps in their godliness, but people who had no godliness of their own at all. That definitely includes me, and it certainly includes you. No, when we see the gaps in someone's godliness, we're not surprised, we're not shocked. In fact, we expect it, don't we? When we see them, we embrace them as a sister or a brother, as someone covered by the blood of Jesus. Here's a few quotes to help us think about gospel community in light of this. Tim Keller says this, The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Every single person in the church is a sinner, fallen short, but covered by Jesus. Here's a longer quote. Don't be scared by its length. This is Don Carson. He says this, Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural co-location, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. See, there are a few things that will test your godliness more than gospel community. But it's also the only place that has the power and the resources to transform it. If we, the gospel community here in the southeast pocket of Perth, live this way, what will happen? Verse 15 that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If we commit to this as a gospel community, we will shine as a light in this region. You see, the local football club, the local playgroup and the local church all have the same problem. They're all full of sinners Disputing, arguments, all happen all of those three places. But only one of them has the power of God to transform. Only one will shine as a light in the world. So let me ask you a question. Do we joyfully want to see the gospel advance in this region and beyond? Then let's, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let's so work the gospel into our hearts as individuals so that as a community we might be transformed to be unified, 
to be committed to one another and to be committed to the advance of the gospel. So that is obedience in the church. Finally, we come to obedience in the end. Why does Paul call on the Philippians to commit to gospel community, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, and to hold on fast to the word of life? Why does he tell them to do these things? Well, he tells us here in the final verses that we're going to look at. He says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul has in mind here the day of Christ, the day of his return, and the day when he will be exalted uh, in front of the universe. For Paul, he desperately wants to see the Philippian Christians bowing with him, bowing with rejoicing and celebrating because for them not to be there would have been for him to run and to labor in vain. No, Paul longs that they would hold fast to the gospel. Verse 17 can be a little difficult to understand. He speaks of being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of the Philippian church's faith. Even that was a mouthful. Uh, but helpful to have in the, back of your, in the back of your mind and in the background of this text is the twice-daily sacrifice of a lamb on the altar in the Jewish uh, sacrificial ceremony. And as the lamb was placed on the altar, and then a, after that, a, a cup full of strong drink would be poured over the lamb, and together they would make the sacrifice that God has ordained. What Paul is saying here is that the faith of the Philippians is the placing on the lamb on the altar. That's the sacrificial offering there in verse 17. And Paul himself is the drink offering being poured out on the sacrificial offering. So here, Paul is saying that they are making this sacrifice together. It reminds us of how they're engaged in the same conflict back in chapter 1, verse 30. You might remember from a few weeks ago. You see, Paul here is making an astonishing point. He's saying that it would, it would mean rejoicing for him if he were to be utterly poured out as a drink offering, if it means that you guys, the Philippian church, were holding fast to the gospel on the day of Jesus' return. You see, whether that means suffering Long hours of toil, persecution, opposition, dealing with tricky people, not to mention any names, Iodia and Syntyche. Nothing is off the table in terms of what Paul would do to see people holding fast to the gospel till the day of Jesus. And if they are, then rejoicing. Not just then, but also now. Not just for Paul, but also for the Philippian church. I'm not sure how good your memory is of what high school was like uh, or whether you're in high school right now and whether it's a positive or negative experience, it's so varied. Either way, something that people always say is this. High school goes so quickly. Enjoy it while it lasts. 
but then you leave high school and then you get into your 20s and then people start telling you, the 20s go so fast. Enjoy your 20s while you're young. And then you get married and then they say, those years before the children come, they go so fast. Enjoy them while you have them. Or, but then you, you start having children and they say, those young years, they go so fast. Enjoy them. You know, the day of the Lord will be a little bit like that. We'll be standing there in the presence of the exalted Lord, saying to each other, that went by so fast. The life we're living now will go so fast. And in light of that, let me ask you, will you join in with Paul's struggle? his labor and toil in advancing the gospel. Not just in your own heart, where the gospel needs to advance first, but also in the life of the church, in the life of this region, where the gospel needs to advance in this city and in this world. Will you join in with Paul's struggle to advance the gospel in this world? C.T. Uh, Studd was an English cricketer who played in the original Ashes Test match uh, but then turned missionary to India and he said these words, Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know, I, I'll, not, sorry, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's going to go past really quickly, this life. Only what's done for Christ will last. Will you join in with Paul's struggle to advance the gospel? To finish up, Uh, Paul here ought to remind you of a few people. Uh, This is a great opportunity for us to pause and to be grateful for those who have poured themselves out for us that we might receive the gospel. Are there people like that in your life? Have you thanked God for them? Tony comes up to 10 years here at GBC. I'm not sure if you know that. Senior pastor here in August, 10 years. There are a few people who know what being a pastor is like, but from what I can see, it looks a lot like pouring your life out. Tony's done that for 10 years here at GBC. He's done that so that we might hold fast to the gospel. He walked into my office this week, just in the back there, and shared with me with joy in his heart, a little tear in his eye, how someone here at GBC was holding fast at the gospel in a deeper way. He'll be the first to tell you that he's far from perfect, but are you grateful to God for him and the role that he has amongst us? See, he's poured his life out, not for a multitude of other reasons that there could be, but that we might hold fast to the gospel. But ultimately, we're reminded of someone else here, aren't we? See, the Lord Jesus Christ poured himself out completely. 
allowing himself to be utterly humiliated by taking on human flesh and by being put to death on a cross. He so fully poured himself out for us in order that we might be saved. Can you see how gospel obedience is radically different? We obey a king who loves us. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us in the Lord Jesus, sending him into this world to take on human flesh, to be humbled to the point of death, and now he is exalted far above any place in the universe. Father, please help us to obey him, to live lives of obedience, uh, not just personally, but also as a community here at GBC, so that we might see the gospel advance in this region and beyond. Amen.